0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor John Cain. Uh, welcome our guests. We can
1: see we're very casual here. Uh, I hope that doesn't uh, turn you off too much. But uh, <laughs> um, the, the, Sorry, John, I apologize. The book, uh, we're going to study a, a, a book by David Jeremiah. It's called The Book of Signs. And it's 31 signs of prophecy. And so right now, you guys know what's going on in the world. And there are a lot of people on YouTube and all the social media outlets. And they're really going in many different directions and getting a platform for end times theology. And so David Jeremiah is a very trusted guy. He's the same as us. He's a dispensational he teaches, a, you know, pre-tribulation rapture, seven years of tribulation, a thousand years millennial reign. Um, so if you're watching online or you're visiting today and you're kind of wondering what it's about, we're going to see what the Bible has to say about these things. But it's going to be relevant because it talks about, we're going to be talking about what happened in 1948 when Israel became a nation, which is an amazing topic. Um, so we're going, to, we're going to kind of give ourselves a time as a church family on Wednesday nights to cover this, Um, because it's going to be, otherwise it's going to be the tendency of us, myself included, to kind of pick and choose what we want to hear from the internet, and and that's okay, we all have the freedom to do that, but this will tell us what the entire Bible says about end times prophecy, and that's why it's going to take so long, but uh, I think it's going to be a great time, so I want to encourage you guys, really pray about uh, joining us, uh, Wednesday night starting on June 2nd. Uh, So uh, enough of that, enough of the uh, advertising. Uh, Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. We're going to cover verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10. Uh, Before I do that, let's kind of quickly go over what we covered last week. Uh, We began last week's study with Jesus' second pronouncement of His impending betrayal, murder, and resurrection. And we noticed that in the teaching, his disciples, uh, Jesus was always speaks of his death and resurrection together. He never speaks of one without the other. And so we thought, you know, that, you know we learned that that should have been encouraging for the disciples. But uh, we know that they did not yet understand the supreme importance of Jesus's mission. In order to destroy the works of the devil, he had some work to do. He has to defeat sin and death. And he does that through the cross and coming out of the grave. But because they had a different set of hopes and expectations about the coming kingdom, and that's a lot what happens in our world today. You know, People have a different set of expectations and a different set of hopes for who God is and what God should be doing for them, what they expect from God. And so these these apostles were there with the living God. And they wouldn't accept a suffering servant. And that's not a popular message in some circles. They wanted a conquering king, and so consequently they started to argue about their power and their position as his disciples. Now, in order to get them to understand their wrong thinking, Jesus first explains to the disciples that they have it all backwards. He said, look, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You know, Jesus turns everything upside down. Then, illustrating his point, Jesus sets a little child among them, you remember, and in verse 37 he says, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So the qualities necessary to receive a child into your arms, if that's the, you know, you sense that that quality, that you will take a young child and you will comfort them. They're the same qualities that should characterize our entire lives as Christians. That's the kind of thing that should really mark us having humility, having the courage and the desire to forgive and to treat everyone just as you would treat treat a little child. Not for what you can get out of the relationship. So, in response to Jesus' teaching, the Apostle John reveals well, you know, him and his disciples, they've been hindering the work of someone. You know, the Lord knew this. But he was hindering the work of someone who wasn't a part of the 12. It wasn't a part of their group. It wasn't a part of their church. He, was, they, he went to some other church, apparently. And they tried to hinder his work. And the Lord corrected them. And he said, look, this, this, he didn't say the word click, but it was a clickish attitude. It's something we really need to guard against sometimes. He reminded them that others who are doing the work of the ministry in Jesus' name for the good of others are to be treated with respect and not to be hindered. Jesus validated this man's ministry in Jesus' name. And then this led to the next point where Jesus had to warn his disciples about the eternal consequences of causing other believers to stumble in their faith by false teaching and insincere leadership. And Jesus had very strong words in verse 42. He said, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him. If a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So with sobering detail, our Lord explains through a use of a thing we call hyperbole. And he talks about the seriousness of sin for both believers and unbelievers. Talking about cutting off your foot and your hand or your eye, plucking it out if it causes you to sin. Emphasizing that the battle against sin includes all aspects of a believer's life what we do, where we go, what we see. And for the lost, the, those that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the reality of hell, which is a place of eternal fire and torment. Now today we're going to take another look at God's plan for marriage. When we talk about marriage between a man and a woman, that's biblical marriage, and the issues of divorce and remarriage. Let me pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your goodness. I ask, Lord, that you go before us today as we study your word, Lord, that you would bring truth to bear on our hearts. Lord, that it would shine through any fogginess or block that we have for understanding, Lord, that we would just simply open up our hearts for you and say, Lord, fill me with your truth. Fill me with your word. By the power of the Holy Spirit, speak to my heart. Go before us now. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Marriage and divorce. I think I'll skip that subject. We'll go ahead and go to uh, Jesus. No, sorry. Let's read our passage for today. I'll read and you follow along. After uh, this encounter we just covered from last week, it says, Then Jesus, he arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and he, as he was accustomed, and he taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked him, uh, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him, of course. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same manner, matter. And so he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Marriage and divorce. Now we start off this, this passage in verse 1 where we see Jesus arose. And we kind of need to talk about that because, again, he's heading south with his apostles and they head to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. Now, if you're uh, if you have your Bible map, you can look back and you can see along the valley of the River Jordan, between the uh, the the uh, Galilean Sea and the Dead Sea. There's an area there; it's called uh, Perea. It may be shown on your Bible map. And so he's on the very kind of eastern side of the Jordan River. Uh, I need to explain, though, first that. How they got there? Because uh, two of the gospels—Luke, uh, chapters ten and eighteen, uh, literally eight chapters—and then the Gospel of John for four chapters—they cover a six-month period of Jesus's ministry in the area known as Judea. Now, Mark and Matthew don't cover that. So, if you put all the you know all the gospels together, you will realize that. You know, they had just been in Judea, left Galilee, and they had just been six months in Judea doing ministry. And now they were coming over and they kind of crossed the river again. And then there's a place uh, called the other side of the Jordan. And it's also, like I said, shown as Perea in your Bible. Now, this is the home of a famous Herod, Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias. And the text says here that we see in verse 1, it says, And the multitudes gathered to him again, as he was accustomed, and he taught them again. Uh, You know, this was something that had been going on for the last two and a half years. Wherever Jesus was, people had to get near him. They had to get close to him. And of course, we've gone through this this, uh, gospel, and we've seen a lot of miracles. Hundreds of miracles took place. But notice he taught them again and it's something always to remember that this is really his primary ministry his primary ministry was not to heal but it was to teach and to preach and to and to call them to repentance and so that's what he did again and while he's doing that you see in verses 2 and 4 2 through 4 the pharisees came oh joy the pharisees they showed up again what do you think they're up to they come in peace right no Right away, they come to test him. They say, "Um, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Like, you know, what a silly question. Here they grew up with the law. They were the experts of the law. They knew what the Word of God said. But Mark records that they were testing him. To be tested is, is, you know, here, to be tempted, if you have a King James Version, and this is a malicious attempt to prove him wrong. This is to set a trap in order to be able to accuse him of blasphemy or false teaching and of course they they were they're cunning and they're smart because here they are they're in Herod and Herodias' neighborhood, okay they're the ones Herod Antipas that took uh, John the Baptist, put him in prison, and had his head cut off because he objected to the unlawful marriage of Herodias. And so these guys are cunning. They were hoping that Jesus could make a public statement against them. But they also wanted to know, you know where he stood on the issue. And we know that today he would probably be called intolerant or, or a hater if uh, you know, popular opinion were brought to bear on what Jesus taught. But of course, he's not going to fall into their trap. And we see in verse 3 where he says, well, what did Moses command you? But that's a good thing to be wise about for you and I. You know, when we get into uh, contentious arguments and situations or discussions or debates, it's helpful for us and mindful for us to remember, hey, what what does the Bible say about this topic? What does the Bible say? Again, we live in a world where everybody can kind of just paste their opinion and send it. I've done it. You, you've all probably done it, once at least. You, you type it out, you read something, you see something, something big deal, and you just send it out. And you, of course you can't get it back. The problem with that, isn't there? But he says, what did Moses command you? And he's going to refer, if you would, uh, while we go through this, you might want to turn over to Deuteronomy 24. I think we're going to post it at some point. But Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, and you can kind of put your hand or you can mark a place there because we're going to go between there and our text for today. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. I'm not going to read through them right now, but he's going to be, this is the text that they are going to reference. When they answered Jesus' question. And they said in verse 4, Well, okay, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. That comes right out of the law. Notice, first of all, that Moses permitted. So this is not a command. We're going to cover that a little bit more later. And notice also it had to be official. It had to be a certificate of divorce. This was a written document stating that the woman was no longer married. And there were a lot of reasons for this. One was she would be free to remarry. And to dismiss her, in other words, to put her away, to send her away, is what the writing says, what Moses wrote. Now, keep this in mind. If you look over at Matthew's account of this episode, in Matthew 19, verse 3, you don't have to turn there, it's up on the screen. It says that the Pharisees also came to him, and they tested him, and they said to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then they added, for just any reason. Now this is a very important thing to keep in mind as we go through today. Because the first question from Mark is like, hey, is it lawful for a man to dismiss his wife, to divorce his wife? Matthew says, for just any reason. For every cause, if you have a King James. You see, as we said earlier, they were plainly wanting Jesus to specify. They wanted him to be very specific here. And he's going to be. Any exceptions you see, divorce was very popular. It was very common. It has been through all of our history. It's very common now. It was very common then. But when you look at Matthew 19, look at Matthew 19, 9. will put that up. If you want an exception, here it is. He says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. So there he gives the exception, and he also gave it earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 5, verse 32, when the question came up then. He said, But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. This is what's known as the exception clause. This has caused a lot of problems in the church. A lot of problems. As we're going to learn, there are some who don't believe in the exception clause. Christians, theologians, smart people. They do not believe in it one bit. Before we do that, let's talk about, again, a little bit more about divorce in the Old Testament sense, where we're at in Deuteronomy. One writer put it this way. Women were subordinate, as was common in most nations in the world. Unless it was a a matrilineal society like some of our American Indian tribes, most women were subordinate. We know that. Some of us have lived long enough to see the advancement of of, of, uh, the feminist movement and and, uh, women's rights. But in that time, this writer says this. Though a Hebrew wife and mother was treated with more consideration than her sister in other lands, even in other Semitic countries, her position nevertheless was one of inferiority and subjection. The marriage relation from the standpoint of Hebrew legislation was looked upon very largely as a business affair, a mere question of property. He goes on, he says, A wife, nevertheless, was indeed, in most homes in Israel, the husband's most valued possession. Notice, possession. And yet, while this is true, the husband was unconditionally and unreservedly the head of the family in all domestic relations. His rights and prerogative were manifest on every side. And nowhere is this more evident in the matter of divorce. According to the laws of Moses, a husband under certain circumstances, might divorce his wife. But on the other hand, if at all possible, it was certainly very difficult for a wife to put away her husband. So what was the law of divorce? Again, Deuteronomy 24, 1. We're going to look at each of these verses, one through four, one at a time. In Deuteronomy 24, 1, it says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce. He puts it in her hand and he sends her out of the house. When you see those words, no favor in his eyes, in other words, he no longer accepts her, her as wife, as his wife. And the reason is because he has found some uncleanness in her. This refers to It's kind of confusing, but it refers to nakedness or shame. The New Living Translation says, if you have one of those, it says, he finds something wrong with her. It doesn't say exactly what it is. And if you have an NIV, it says something indecent about her. And so, because of what we just said, because he has the prerogative to do so, uh, and and if he decides, he writes her a certificate of divorce. So the Pharisees were correct so far in their answer to Jesus. But it was permitted, not commanded. Remember that. As we go through this, remember that it's permitted, but not commanded. Now, why do you say, would it be permitted? I mean, you know God hates divorce, and God's the author of marriage. So why would he allow Moses, the mediator for, God, for God's people, Why would he not have corrected Moses at that point when he decided to put that into play? Well, it's got a lot to do with our sinful nature, folks, and our stubbornness. And one big reason was to protect the wife. Because even though the husband was basically permitted to divorce for practically any reason whatsoever, there was still a legal contract that had to be settled. And so it required a certificate of divorce And it had to be written up and placed in her hand. In other words, it wasn't going to be that easy to divorce your wife. Even though you didn't have to have any reason other than, we're going to go through some of those. Now don't turn there, we won't put this slide up. But there's two reasons why he would be denied this access, the ability to divorce his wife. The first one is in Deuteronomy 22, verse 13 through 19. This passage describes a man who decides he just doesn't want to be married and so he makes a false claim about his bride. And he claims that she was not a virgin. But because her parents have proof, they have tokens of virginity, which we will not talk about today, a divorce will not be granted. Remember, this is the law of God coming through Moses to the people. In Deuteronomy twenty-two twenty-eight, 28, we have another reason why he doesn't get to divorce. And that's if this talks about a man who seduces a virgin, and then he's required to marry her. But keep in mind that the advantage was always with the husband. The wife was not utterly helpless, though. Uh, I won't speak for you wives, but there are ways that wives, well, I will speak and I might get in trouble, but there are ways that our wives can get their way uh, when we try to take a hard stand as husbands. And there was one, one technique that could be used would be that this wife who wanted a divorce from this husband, even though she didn't have the legal right to do it, well, she would make the house so miserable that he would basically force her to divorce her. And you can go on and on with something like that. But in the law, he, she could now go and remarry another husband. This protected her from being destitute. This gave her a play, because otherwise she would have been destitute. And so we see in Deuteronomy 24, verse 2, it says, When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And we come to verses 3 and 4, and here's where it gets messy. And it always does. It always does. It says here in verse 3, If the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, Or if the latter husband dies, the one who took her as his wife, then her former husband, the guy who originally divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. Now this is a command. Because he says, For it is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So now you see the difference between what was permitted, which was not considered an abomination, to what is now commanded to go against. And the reason for that, God's wisdom in that, was because it was designed to prevent hasty divorces. Knowing how messy it could get, and I, I, I would venture to guess that uh, that still applies today. Knowing how messy it could get, you know, we've heard the, all the slogans about that. And even though divorces were common among the nation Israel, they were still ways that God sought to prevent these divorces from happening. So we all know that God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. Yet as God's mediator to the nation Israel, God permitted Moses to recognize the reality of divorce but in a way that neither condones it nor condemns it. You read it for yourself. You've been through it. Now you know what the Bible says from the Old Testament stance about divorce. Now, you you might want to say, well, okay, well, what were the grounds for divorce? And this is where it gets very silly. But it starts out, of course, you might say, well, what about adultery? Well, remember, in the Old Testament, adultery the penalty was death you know by the way so we're kind of back to the lesser grounds for divorce so now when now you know follow me on this when Jesus when the Pharisees who had all this information in their minds because they were experts on the law and so they come before Jesus in verse two and they say is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife what they had going on in, their, in the back of their mind, not only the law, but there were two schools of thought, two schools, prevailing schools of thought about divorce. You know, remember, this was a culture, the Jewish culture, Judaic culture was controlled and ruled by scribes, and, and of course the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians. But, but these scribes, these interpreters of the law, they ruled society. And people, you know, they would go to them. They were they were like the lawyers of the day. And so you had two schools. You had the school of Shammai. And you had the school of Hillel. You might have heard of Hillel. The Rabbi Hillel. Now, Rabbi Shammai, he said that in Deuteronomy, the words that said some uncleanness meant adultery only. That was the only reason why a wife could be uh, able to get a divorce or a husband could divorce his wife was because of adultery. He, he looked at some uncleanness and he said that only means adultery. It doesn't mean anything else but that. One, one writer put it this way. A wife could be as loose and as mean as Jezebel, but she was not to be divorced unless she committed adultery. Then you had the school of Hillel. And they stressed the same word, some uncleanness, as pretty much any flimsy excuse you can come up with. Burning the toast. Improper seasoning of a meal. Finding another woman that he liked better. When you read the Mishnah, it says this. It says in the Mishnah, the following women may be divorced. And then it lists. She who violates the law of Moses. She who causes her husband to each each. Eat food which has not been tithed. She who vows but does not keep her vows. She who goes out on the street with her hair loose or spins in the street or converses, flirts with any man. Or is a noisy woman. What is a noisy woman? It is one who speaks in her own house so loud that the neighbors may hear her. They explain this. They go to the length to explain these things to them. And therefore, a man could divorce his wife for any of those reasons. School of Hillel. Now remember, the Pharisees wanted to embroil Jesus in a controversy. Isn't that so much what we see today? Let's see where you stand on these things. It was a controversy between a kind of conservative and a very liberal view, if you will. And they were simply asking him if he agreed with the school of Hillel. Because they favored that position. They liked the more, you know, the looser the better. But no matter what position Jesus took, he would offend and stir up a large number of people, and he would become embroiled in a very mean controversy. What a mess. What a mess. Just like divorce in our day, But thankfully, Jesus is actually going to simplify it for us. Isn't that a good thing? But the question for you and I is, will we receive the simple truth and obey it, or will we complicate it? Will we seek to complicate the issue? So Jesus comes, verses 5 through 9, and he takes them back to basics. It's always good to get back to basics. Basics. We're going to talk about two things. Man's hardness of heart and God's plan for marriage. You know, this, this is what's going on. This is where the debate lies. This is where the problem is. God's way, man's way. It's always like that for whatever situation. And so in verse 5, he says, Because of the hardness of your heart, he, meaning Moses, wrote this precept. Hardness of your heart, sclerocardia, hard-heartedness. And Moses wrote this precept. It was meant to curb behavior. It wasn't a command. He gave him this reason. He was meant to curb behavior that was already in practice. That may be an eye-opener for some of us. That that God in this sense was Sort of relative what was going on. He was relative in responding to what was going on in the hard-hearted society. And so God made a way, he, he condescended in a way, if you will, and he allowed Moses to do this. And Jesus states it. He gives the reason, because of the hardness of your heart. Jesus saw divorce as hardness of heart. No doubt. The Old Testament did not command divorce if two people were not compatible and did not get along. You know, The Old Testament, we, we, we saw the law of Hillel near the end of what we talked about, but not in the Bible, not in God's law. And the Old Testament only permitted divorce. It didn't encourage it. Divorce was a concession. It wasn't the will of God. It's not something He, he desires It was allowed because man's heart was hard. That is sinful. Sinful man, we're sinful and fallen. And importantly, divorce was never willed. It was never, again, the purpose of God. So we look in verse 6. We saw man's way and the hardness of heart. Now we look in verse 6. Jesus is going to talk about God's way. The way God intended. We've all heard these passages from Genesis. It says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Jesus was also reminding them that marriage didn't come into existence with Moses, it started with creation. In Genesis 1.27, uh, God created the male and female. Genesis 1.27 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. You see that. And since it was truly the beginning, okay, this was the beginning. God created in the beginning. It was also the pattern for the rest of mankind. There was only one man and one woman at the time. There could could not be divorce. There could not be adultery at the very beginning. And so this pattern, God desires it for us even today. Even though we have a population of over 7 billion people, by the end of this decade, we'll be up to 8 billion if the Lord tarries. But this pattern for marriage still applies in God's eyes. You see, God really does desire for each marriage... That each spouse would actually think and behave as there was only two. It was just Adam and Eve in the garden. That is what God desires, that pattern, He desires it for today. And you know that if you did that, if you're married, and if that was you know, your focus, each spouse would only look to the other, you would reduce the problem with divorce. You'd be living in God's will. Now, in verse 7, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The reason is what he just said. It was, notice, a man and his wife. Singular, not polygamy. So you, people are going to you know, say, Well, oh, the Bible shows that all these people had multiple wives and husbands. That wasn't what God intended, Ever. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife. To be joined means to be glued together. It's literally glued together. It's a proscaleo. It's to be a strong union between two committed people, not just a business transaction that is contingent on mutual benefit. A lot, of things, you know, a lot of things happen where divorce happens after long periods of time. And that's because one or the other, or both the husband and wife, have said, look, the, you know, we had our day. We had our time together. But you are not meeting my needs anymore, and I'm not meeting yours. So let's just call it quits. But God looks at it as something to, to be joined together unto death. He says, two shall become one flesh. He goes on. The bond is so close that it is unbreakable without what? Permanent damage to each one. If you take a, you know, two pieces of wood, you've heard this analogy before, that are glued tightly together, and then you force them apart, what happens? You know, so it's all mangled up, and it, it just does a lot of damage to both pieces. And so he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. That's how tight it is. That's how, that's how close it is. And when you look at your children you see that come to bear because of the resemblance of both spouses is right there. And that right there is a, is a, is a, is a key element of understanding one flesh. Beautiful picture. And though, so in, he says, therefore, in light of what all he just said, all the things we talked about being together, all should be joined together. Not say he says, therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. See, God doesn't desire to separate Man would, and he says, don't do it. Marriage between a man and a woman is an act of God which he bestows. He does that upon both believers and unbelievers. This is an institution that was created by God. And he intends marriage to be a lasting relationship and breaking the bond that God created is a direct attack on God himself. So Jesus has just affirmed a very clear way, very clearly and very to the point, several biblical principles. Uh, The liberal view of divorce for any reason is not supported by the scriptures. Adultery, premarital sex, and coveting your neighbor's spouse are still all forbidden by God. And just like they lived in a society that had, you know, all this rampant uh, immorality going on. I don't need to tell you that we live in the same type of society. It provides the legal right to destroy what God has joined together. You will not go to jail for having a divorce. And it's not only in divorce, but the family in general. Abortion. Now you have gender dysphora. Same-sex marriage. You see, our generation has seen all of this come to pass in rapid succession. So you see a direct... And so when you, church, when we consider what has happened in our society, um, we're, we're getting to the point, it's, it's actually past due that time. You know, we all have our opinions, but we are, we are certainly beyond the point, not beyond the point of action, But we need to step up and we need to speak out. And I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do that. Because we're not insurrectionists. We're not going to go burn buildings. But honestly, folks, we really need to step up and speak out. And many of you already have. And many believers in the church. Uh, We're going to be talking about um, uh, a ministry called uh, Love Life, which is an anti-abortion ministry. I'm, I'm in the process right now of pursuing that as a potential for us to join together as a church with other churches to uh, to take a stand against abortion. That involves prayer. That does involve maybe some travel to abortion clinics, stuff like that. And I'll let you know uh, as the Lord guides me, I, I intend to encourage us with that. To take a stand. And so the question that was coming to Jesus at that time, to the liberal, by the liberal Pharisees, you know, they were asking, where are you at? Are you conservative or are you progressive in this area? Do you stand with God? And that's going to be the challenge for us in these days. It used to be we could, you know, have our Jesus, we could have our church, we could have our entertainment. It used to be like that. Nobody would bother us. But now it's coming in our town. It's coming all around us. It's coming into our society. We've got a good couple of generations who are being taught by a public school system that just destroys the truth of God. And so it's no longer our option to sit around and just kind of twiddle our thumbs and enjoy our wonderful life. And I'm not saying we can't enjoy the fruit of our labor and the things that God provides for us. And hear me, folks, I'm not talking about insurrection, okay? God's very conservative, and I know a lot of you are too, and so am I. But that doesn't mean we we don't have some work, that God doesn't have a plan for us. So Jesus went through all this. He answered the Pharisees. He went back and forth, and then we have the final two verses for today. And you get to the point where now the disciples are alone with Jesus, and they're like basically saying, Lord, could you repeat that? (laughs) We've got some questions here. So in the house, his disciples also asked him again the same matter. Why were they asking him these questions? Most likely they were, they were scratching their heads. You know, these men were Jews who grew up in this culture. They understood it to be what it was. And they're like, you know, maybe, maybe even some were thinking, man, I was, I was getting ready to divorce my wife. I, you know, I had my reasons and now, you know, I, I mean, I don't know, but, you know, it, it would have been that easy for them especially the ease of divorce and the confusion in the culture about the divorce. So he reiterates it. He says, well, okay. Verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And verse 12. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now notice something right there that happened in the old Testament. You weren't even talking about a woman being able to divorce her husband. And already Jesus is talking about the way that it can work both directions. Not that God wants divorce, but you see the change that's happened in society. Now, for a minute I'd like to just Let's talk about adultery. And, I, and I'm not going to talk about adultery in the, in the way most of us understand adultery. You know what I'm talking about that with that. I don't need to explain that. Many of us would never, a person that's married, happily married, would never think, even think of turning away from their spouse to a third person. But here's what can happen in a marriage that I think hits a lot closer to home. You are certainly not considering being with a third person, spouse. But you readily, perhaps, and willingly turn toward yourself and turn towards other things in the marriage. We saw that God said to the nation Israel in Jeremiah 3.8, he said this, If he's talking about spiritual adultery, he said, then I saw that for all the causes and for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, And I put her away and gave her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and also played the harlot. So God talks about actually divorcing the nation in a spiritual sense. And many people have done exactly what Israel had done. They refuse to surrender to God. They live in a backslidden state. And day by day, they have turned more and more Away from their spouse, and in some cases, their children, what I mean is this: day by day, in a marriage, a person can take their spouse and their children, they could be mean and ugly. and I'm not talking about, you know, perfection. We know that that. But it gets worse. Mean and ugly, they can be nagging and they can be mentally cruel to one another. They can be neglectful and unthoughtful of one another. Unfortunately, they can be physically abusive and even life-threatening towards one another. They can also be deliberately withdrawn and separated. And this is the kind of thing that can happen within a marriage that stays married in a miserable state, if you will. And so you and I need to consider that. You know, it's easy to cast judgment on people for their sexual sins and sins of adultery, for instance, But honestly, I think the Lord will always, you know, the word is a mirror to us and we always need to turn it back on ourselves and say, well, how am I treating my spouse? Am I being neglectful? And, you know, and a lot of times, you know, it's self-correcting. One or the other is going to tell you, hey, hey, buddy, hey, pal, get back on the program. And so if you respond to your wife and you love your wife as a Christian, man, I'm speaking of men or, or wives, you know, you're going to come into obedience, You're going to follow the Lord and you're going to do what the Lord says for men to lay down your wife, your life as Christ died for the church. But there is certainly a lot of animosity that can build up. One writer put it this way. He said, the truth of marriage is known only to God. You know, the full truth, because it still is somewhat of a mystery for us. A husband or a wife can use his or her personality to present a front to the world Yet within the heart there can be such a hardness towards their spouse, such an unwillingness to truly cleave that God just cannot join them together as one flesh. Hardness very simply wrecks a marriage by causing one spouse to turn away and separate from the other spouse. If the spouses are not together, they are separate. They're not cleaving. There can be no cleaving if the two are not together. Cleaving is the only possible way way God allows His plan to join them together into spiritual union in marriage. So you can be living under the same roof and be at opposite ends of the spectrum, in your heart, in your mind. So that's where we have our passage. leaves us today, but I would like to cover something else as well. You can call this bonus material. I think we need to be very um, aware and speak against wrong teaching. You know, we talked about earlier about the exception clause. And some believe, I don't know anybody personally, although I have run into maybe one or two, some believe that the verses we just talked about, verses 10 through 12, where Jesus simply asks, you know, if a, if a man... Uh, commits adultery, or a woman commits adultery, you know, and they divorce their wives, divorce each other. Uh, Some people believe that those verses cancel out other biblical teaching about divorce, which we covered earlier today. Because Jesus said, he gave an exception for divorce. And he said, sexual infidelity or unfaithfulness. In Mark 5.32, 19 eight through nine. And we also have we're not going to go too far with this today, we also have the Apostle Paul's teaching on in 1 Corinthians seven fifteen about abandonment. And we need to be careful when somebody tries to influence us to sort of pick and choose from the Bible what we decide is true. They believe, some would believe, that these last three verses we just read cancel out all of the work the New Testament says about divorce and remarriage. Totally wipes it out. It does not apply. Now, David Guzik points points this out. He says, when you look at James 1.27, where it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this... To visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Is this all the Bible says about your Christian faith? Is that it right there? That's it. That's all there is about Christian faith in that. I don't mean to point, but that is, that is about all it says. No. See, we study the whole counsel of God. We take all of God's word. And so to say that those are canceled out by or Mark's teachings are canceled out by Matthew's teachings is taking it the wrong way. So we always need to take the whole counsel of God. So you see, the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage is both simple and complex. What do I mean by that? Well, it's simple if you consider consider the whole counsel of God, if you read the Bible. It's complex because a number of reasons. The legal system of our day. Again, it was complex for them, the legal system of their day. Uh, You know, divorce lawyers, divorce court, it's common. The uh, no-fault divorce came in back in the late 60s, or early 70s, and the divorces were on the rise after that, and have been ever since. Believe it or not, in America, you used to have to follow a biblical reason to, to get a divorce, to be granted a divorce. But with no-fault divorce, that all changed. So it makes it complicated when the legal system of the day doesn't match the Bible. You know, we've seen this recently with same-sex marriage. When the legal system of the day doesn't no longer matches scriptures, it makes life Very complicated. And let's not forget that there are very unique situations, circumstances, I should say, in each and every situation. There's no pat answer for how I would counsel somebody about marriage and remarriage and such. It really is, to a great degree, based on the situation. And so we have... We have uh, confusing or complexity because of the legal system of the day, because of the unique circumstances in each situation, and from bad teaching. Some people are teaching bad theology, bad doctrine from the Bible. So when we look at the whole council of the Bible, it's kind of a rehash. Biblical divorce, what God permits and what allows, is found not only here, but in Matthew 5 32, 19 8 and uh, 9. This is God's concession. And biblical divorce is allowed in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for abandonment. 1 Corinthians chapter seven fifteen. That is taking the whole counsel of God into play. Others would say um, that you can. Oh, then we have unbiblical divorce. Just leaving a person because you want to. That's considered unbiblical divorce. The two chap- verses we just read, Matthew 19, 9, and Luke 16, 18. Those are unbiblical divorce reasons for divorce. We talk about today's legal system, basically any reasons, uh, so-called uh, uh, you know, no-fault divorce, unique circumstances, One of the unique circumstances that you have to consider is unequally yoked marriages. When one believer is married to a non-believer because it creates a whole range of problems. And the more um, that I study and the more that I I see this, and I am no expert by any means, I can see a whole range of problems that could be avoided by people that are like-minded in their faith getting married. But in that day, when Christianity was new and a lot of adults were coming to know the Lord, and this still happens in our day, you could easily have either the husband or the wife get saved and the other person wasn't. And so when Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.1, he says, "Wives, Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, in other words, they're not believers, or they're not living as believers, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. In other words, don't throw in the towel, don't give up on your marriage because your husband or, you know, is not a Christian. Stay and pray. And I can tell you uh, that that works miracles. That works miracles, let me just tell you. Now the bad teaching that says, hey, you know, you read it yourself. Uh, it says here you can't, you know. Uh, it says here whoever commits div- divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. The bad teaching says, when you say, if you were to say, well, wait a minute. Um, Matthew said, except for sexual immorality. They would say, well, only Matthew wrote that. So we can still cancel it out. What? No, you can't say that. You cannot pick and choose from the scriptures and say, well, Matthew, was only one isolated incident, and so therefore, no. Now I can see how we we need to be careful, and actually it records it twice. Matthew records it twice. Now how do you have two mistakes by God, the Holy Spirit, on the issue? I don't know. I don't know. I don't see it. And then where it gets really bad and really wrong teaching is that if you did get a divorce for the wrong reasons, not biblical reasons, now marry another person, the only way that you can make it right, and this is what some people will tell you, the only way you can make it right is to now divorce your current spouse and then return to your first spouse or stay single till you're dead. Or till they're dead, excuse me. This is what's so-called the only true repentance from unbiblical divorce. And if you don't repent this way, it gets even worse. There are denominations that teach this. If you don't repent this way, guess what? You're going to hell. You're already there. I hope not, Fred. Fred. Now, how do they justify the position that you're going to hell? Well, we know about their sin lists. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Write them down. Hebrews 13:4. Revelation 21, 7 through 8. All these areas, if you go to them, they all teach this about adultery. They all say that adulterers are going to hell. You know why? Because they're unrepentant. That's why. Along with everybody else on the list. Hebrews thirteen four, it says, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Yes, God will does God judge unrepentant sin? Yes. Yes. So let's be honest, let's just say it this way. What if a person admits to having gone through an unbiblical divorce, a sinful act, and now they're remarried? Are they guilty of adultery in God's eyes? Yes, they are. Yes, they are, and they need to repent. But you know what? When you repent of your sins, and it's not the unpardonable sin, by the way, when you repent of your sins, you and I, and especially perhaps in this case, if you're getting that kind of wicked counsel, you can repent in full confidence of God's promise that God will forgive you. 1 John 1.9 It says, read it with me. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Guzik writes this about the whole situation. It is wrong and even destructive to teach that the only valid expression of repentance would be to leave your present spouse and either be reconciled to your originally divorced spouse or to live in celibate singleness until the day you die or the day your originally divorced spouse dies. Why is this wrong? Because it would be like trying to correct one sin by committing the another sin. Another thing to keep in mind is when you read Paul's context, when he's talking about marriage, and again, this is from over in 1 Corinthians seven twenty-four, on the subject of um, abandonment and allowing you know, uh, people to be you know, biblically divorced for when, when an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse. He says, brethren, let each one remain with God in the state which he was called. You don't have to try and unravel all the sins of your past. You need to move forward with repentance and obedience. That's what it is. Moving forward with repentance and obedience. We remember the story in John 8, verses 10 through 11. It says, when Jesus had raised himself up, and he saw that no one but the woman, okay, so she was brought before, the the, the Jews brought this woman caught in the very act of adultery, brought her out, to be stoned to death. And Jesus said this. He said, uh, when they came out, he said, Jesus had raised himself up and he saw no one but the woman because he called him out. He said, be the, whoever's the first one to accuse, you be the first one to throw that rock. But what did he say to her? He said, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. So we have some false teaching. We have some bad teaching. And you need to know what the Bible says to be able to stand up to it. There's other things that are said, uh, you know, when it comes to marriage, what the church has done to marriage and divorce. Here's another one an unnamed denomination, I'll call them. They have stated that under no circumstances can a man who has been divorced be allowed to pastor a church. Under no circumstances, this this denomination. Even biblical divorce or when he was a non-believer. Yet, that same denomination would allow a repentant murderer to be a pastor. I know this to be true. I know of a pastor in this certain denomination who had gone to prison for murder and became a pastor. He was forgiven. He paid his price, his debt to humanity. And this led to somewhat of a famous saying, maybe you may have heard it, for this particular denomination, which I won't name, but it was safer to murder your wife than it was to divorce her in in that denomination. So we've got some pretty unbiblical teaching about divorce. And we live in the same type of society where divorce is unfortunately very common. But folks, it is not the unpardonable sin. So we need to understand that as well. So we need to understand what God says about divorce. We also need to understand, is divorce for biblical reasons required? That seems to be a trend now. Because of some of this false teaching, There are people saying, I I have to divorce my spouse because of what they've done. I have to. And they they believe that God has told them that they have to. You know what? God doesn't say that anywhere, that you have to. Not in the New Testament. But God does hate divorce. And we need to remember that. He made a permission. He gave an allowance and a concession But in our day, under the new covenant, He never commands it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to do a closing prayer. James is going to come up and lead us in a song after that. But I'd like to stand together. and We can uh, dim the lights if you like. And we're going to put up Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17. We'll read that. I will read and we'll follow. You guys read that together with me. Mm. Let me me first pray and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we thank you for your word today. We ask, Lord God, that you would go before us. um, Just kind of renew our hearts and minds, Lord, with truth. The accuser waits out there, the, the liar and the enemy of our soul. He still lies in wait for us. He will always come against us, even to the end of our life. But Lord, we desire to be equipped by you. We desire to be have the full armor of God to be upon us each and every day. We desire to to fight the good fight, fight the good battle with truth, and to do what you call us to do. So help us, Lord, as we walk through these days. Guide our steps. I pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Psalm 90, verses 12 through 17. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which you have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. Let's sing this song together.
0: To the only God Who is able to keep us able to keep us from falling to the only God. Be your glory and honor, majesty and power for ages now and forevermore. To the only God Who is able to keep us Able to keep us from falling To the only God Be all glory and honor Majesty and power for ages now and forevermore. Forevermore. Be your glory and honor, majesty and power for ages now And forevermore Forevermore The Lord bless and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. God bless. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.